himself. America's first great publicist, he was, in his life and in his writings, consciously trying to create a new American archetype. In the process, he carefully crafted his own persona, portrayed it in public, and polished it for posterity. Partly, it was a matter of image. As a young printer in Philadelphia, he carted rolls of paper through the streets to give the appearance of being industrious. As an old diplomat in France, he wore a fur cap to portray the role of backwoods sage. In between, he created an image for himself as a simple yet striving tradesman, assiduously honing the virtues, diligence, frugality, honesty, of a good shopkeeper and beneficent member of his community. But the image he created was rooted in reality. Born and bred a member of the leather-aproned class, Franklin was, at least for most of his life, more comfortable with artisans and thinkers than with the established elite, and he was allergic to the pomp and perks of a hereditary aristocracy. Throughout his life he would refer to himself as B. Franklin, printer. From these attitudes sprang what may be Franklin's most important vision an American national identity based on the virtues and values of its middle class. Instinctively more comfortable with democracy than were some of his fellow founders, and devoid of the snobbery that later critics would feel toward his own shopkeeping values, he had faith in the wisdom of a common man and felt that a new nation would draw its strength from what he called the middling people. Through his self-improvement tips for cultivating personal virtues, and his civic improvement schemes for furthering the common good, he helped to create and to celebrate a new ruling class of ordinary citizens. The complex interplay among various facets of Franklin's character, his ingenuity and unreflective wisdom, his Protestant ethic divorced from dogma, the principles he held firm and those he was willing to compromise, means that each new look at him reflects and refracts the nation's changing values. He has been vilified in romantic periods and lionized in entrepreneurial ones. Each era appraises him anew, and in doing so reveals some assessments of itself. Franklin has a particular resonance in 21st century America. A successful publisher and consummate networker with an inventive curiosity, he would have felt right at home in the information revolution, and his unabashed striving to be part of an upwardly mobile meritocracy made him, in social critic David Brooks's phrase, our founding yuppie. Some who see the reflection of Franklin in the world today fret about a shallowness of soul and a spiritual complacency that seem to permeate a culture of materialism. They say that he teaches us how to live a practical and pecuniary life, but not an exalted existence. Others see the same reflection and admire the basic middle-class values and democratic sentiments that now seem under assault from elitists, radicals, reactionaries, and other bashers of the bourgeoisie. They regard Franklin as an exemplar of the personal character and civic virtue that is too often missing in modern America. Much of the admiration is warranted, and so, too, are some of the qualms. But the lessons from Franklin's life are more complex than those usually drawn by either his fans or his foes. Both sides too often confuse him with the striving pilgrim he portrayed in his autobiography. 
They mistake his genial moral maxims for the fundamental faiths that motivated his actions. His morality was built on a sincere belief in leading a virtuous life, serving the country he loved, and hoping to achieve salvation through good works. That led him to make the link between private virtue and civic virtue, and to suspect, based on the meager evidence he could muster about God's will, that these earthly virtues were linked to heavenly ones as well. As he put it in the motto for the library, he founded, To pour forth benefits for the common good is divine. In comparison to contemporaries such as Jonathan Edwards, who believed that men were sinners in the hands of an angry God whose salvation could come through grace alone, this outlook might seem somewhat complacent. In some ways it was, but it was also genuine. Whatever view one takes, it is useful to engage anew with Franklin, for in doing so we are grappling with a fundamental issue. How does one live a life that is useful, virtuous, worthy, moral, and spiritually meaningful? For that matter, which of these attributes is most important? These are questions just as vital for a self-satisfied age as they were for a revolutionary one. Pilgrim's Progress During the late Middle Ages, a new class emerged in the villages of rural England, men who possessed property and wealth, but were not members of the titled aristocracy. Proud, but without great pretension, assertive of their rights as members of an independent middle class, these freeholders came to be known as Franklins, from the Middle English word Frankelein, meaning free man. The earliest documented use of that name by one of Benjamin Franklin's ancestors, at least that can be found today, was by his great-great-grandfather, Thomas Franklin, or Franklin, born around 1540 in the Northamptonshire village of Ecton. His independent spirit became part of the family lore. This obscure family of ours was early in the Reformation, Franklin later wrote, and were sometimes in danger of trouble on account of their zeal against popery. When Queen Mary I was engaged in her bloody crusade to re-establish the Roman Catholic Church, Thomas Franklin kept the banned English Bible tied to the underside of a stool. The stool could be turned over on a lap so the Bible could be read aloud, but then instantly hidden whenever the apparitor rode by. The strong yet pragmatic independence of Thomas Franklin, along with his clever ingenuity, seems to have been passed down through four generations. The family produced dissenters and nonconformists who were willing to defy authority, although not to the point of becoming zealots. They were clever craftsmen and inventive blacksmiths with a love of learning. Avid readers and writers, they had deep convictions, but knew how to wear them lightly. Sociable by nature, the Franklins tended to become trusted counselors to their neighbors, and they were proud to be part of the middling class of independent shopkeepers and tradesmen and freeholders. Thomas Franklin's great-great-grandson, Josiah Franklin, left Ecton in the 1670s for the nearby Oxfordshire market town of Banbury and bound himself to a pleasant older brother named John, who had set up shop there as a silk and cloth dyer. After the doer days of Cromwell's protectorate, the restoration under King Charles II led to a brief flowering of the garment industry. While in Banbury, Josiah was swept up in the second great religious convulsion to hit England, 
The first had been settled by Queen Elizabeth. The English church would be Protestant rather than Roman Catholic. Yet she and her successors subsequently faced pressure from those who wanted to go even further and to purify the church of all Roman Catholic traces. The Puritans, as these Calvinist dissenters who advocated this purge of papist vestiges came to be known, stressed congregational self-governments, emphasized the sermon and Bible study over the liturgy and ritual, and disdained much of the Anglican Church's adornments as lingering pollutants from the Church of Rome. Despite their puritanical views on personal morality, their sect appealed to some of the more intellectual members of the middle class because it emphasized the value of meetings, discussions, sermons, and a personal understanding of the Bible. By the time Josiah arrived in Banbury, the town was torn by the struggle over Puritanism. The Franklin family was divided as well, though less bitterly. The oldest brothers, John and Thomas III, remained loyal to the Anglican Church. Josiah and Benjamin, sometimes called Benjamin the Elder to distinguish him from his famous nephew, became dissenters. But Josiah was never fanatic in pursuing theological disputes. There is no record of any family feud over the issue. Franklin would later claim that it was a desire to enjoy the exercise of their religion with freedom that led his father Josiah to immigrate to America. To some extent, this was true. The end of Cromwell's Puritan rule and the restoration of the monarchy in 1660 had led to restrictions on the Puritan faithful, and dissenting ministers were forced from their pulpits. But Josiah's brother, Benjamin the Elder, was probably right in attributing the move more to economic than religious factors. At age 19, Josiah married a friend from Ecton, Anne Child, and brought her to Banbury. In quick succession they had three children. With his apprenticeship over, he worked on salary in his brother's shop. But there was not enough business to support both fast-growing Franklin families, and the law made it impossible for Josiah to go into a new trade without serving another apprenticeship. As Benjamin the Elder put it, Things not succeeding there according to his mind, with the leave of his friends and father, he went to New England in the year of 1683. Josiah Franklin was twenty-five years old when he set sail for America with his wife, two toddlers, and a baby girl only a few months old. The voyage in a squat frigate crammed with a hundred passengers took more than nine weeks, and it cost the family close to fifteen pounds, which was about six months' earning for a tradesman such as Josiah. It was, however, a sensible investment. Wages in the New World were two to three times higher, and the cost of living was lower. The demand for brightly dyed fabrics and silks was not great in a frontier town, especially a Puritan one such as Boston. Indeed, it was a legal offense to wear clothing that was considered too elaborate. But unlike in England, there was no law requiring a person to serve a long apprenticeship before going into a trade. So Josiah chose a new one that had far less glamour but far more utility, that of a tallow chandler, rending animal fat into candles and soap. He set up shop and residence in a rented two-and-a-half-story clabbered house on the corner of Milk Street and High Street now Washington Street. The ground floor was only one room with a kitchen and a separate tiny structure added in the back. Across the street was the South Church, newest and most liberal 
relatively speaking, of Boston's three Puritan congregations. Josiah was admitted to membership, or permitted to own the covenant, two years after his arrival. A trusted and paternalistic figure, Josiah rose within Boston's Puritan civic hierarchy. In 1697, he was tapped to become a tithing man, the name for the moral marshals whose job it was to enforce attendance and attention at Sunday services. Six years later, he was made a constable, one of eleven people who helped oversee the tithing men. Although the posts were unpaid, Josiah practiced the art which his son would perfect of marrying public virtue with private profit. He made money by selling candles to the night watchman he oversaw. As Josiah prospered, his family grew. He would have seventeen children over a period of thirty-four years. In 1689, his first wife, Anne, died a week after delivering another son. The new baby died after another week. It was not unusual for men in colonial New England to outlive two or three wives, nor was it considered callous for a bereaved husband to remarry quickly. In fact, as in the case of Josiah, it was often considered an economic necessity. At the age of thirty-one he had five children to raise, a trade to tend, and a shop to keep. He needed a robust new wife, and he needed her quickly. Less than five months after he buried Anne at South Church, he married a fellow parishioner named Abiah Folger. Over the next twelve years, Josiah and Abiah Franklin had six children, John, born 1690, Peter, 1692, Mary, 1694, James, 1697, Sarah, 1699, and Ebenezer, 1701. When he was a toddler of sixteen months, Ebenezer drowned in a tub of his father's suds. Later that year, in 1703, the Franklins had another son, but he also died as a child. So even though their next son, Benjamin, would spend his youth in a house with ten older siblings, the youngest of them would be seven years his senior. And he would have two younger sisters, Lydia, born 1708, and Jane, 1712, looking up to him. Benjamin Franklin was born and baptized on the same day, a Sunday, January 17, 1706. Boston was by then 76 years old, no longer a Puritan outpost, but a thriving commercial center filled with preachers, merchants, seamen, and prostitutes. It had more than a thousand homes, a thousand ships registered at its home.